Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be uh, gathered together to remember you. And even as we remember you, we remember those who have given their lives. Those who went where we couldn't. those who've made a great sacrifice for our freedom. And even though it may be an imperfect way, we see in those sacrifices uh, an image of yours. And so we remember them. We give thanks for those. And we see through those and we look to you. And so we thank you. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the Bible offers us a bottomless mine of images of Jesus. Obviously, the ones that you would see in the four gospel accounts are plain and simple to recognize, and yet all of Scripture points to Jesus. I was just having a conversation. Um, today, I think it might have been Aaron and Tim, or the other day, Aaron and Tim and I, a couple of people were chatting and were talking about um, that moment when Jesus, after the resurrection, walked to Emmaus with those two disciples who didn't recognize Jesus. They didn't recognize it was him, remember? And it says that Jesus opened up the scriptures as they walked and he explained to them everything from the law and from the prophets pointing to himself. What I wouldn't have given to have heard the Son of God preaching, explaining, sharing the scriptures about everything that's there that points to himself. It is a treasure trove of beauty to explore. One of my favorite Places. One of my favorite passages, which I think is a precious gift to show us an image of Jesus' beauty, is found in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, Philippians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, make sure they're open in front of you, Philippians chapter 2. If you uh, have a digital one, make sure that it's set to do not disturb or aeroplane mode or something. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible, and we're going to just start reading from verse 6. Philippians 2, verse 6, I think I might have a a slide up on the screen if, um, if for some reason you don't have your Bible with you today, or for those that are watching at home. Philippians 2, starting from verse 6, says this, Who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited... Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to break that passage down a little bit and highlight three important progressions in the text. And I think show how they help us to perceive and to understand more fully the beauty of Jesus. So in verse 6 of that little passage that we just read out and I've highlighted on the screen, you might not be able to see it, hopefully you can. Philippians 2 and 6 says, Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. That single verse is not very long. That short little verse holds a profound reality. I think it reveals something about the inner working of Jesus' heart towards us and towards his relationship with his Father. I want to just make a special note here because there's some people who get this verse a little bit mixed around. It says in the text that Jesus existed in the form of God. That does not mean that at any point in time, Jesus was ever something less than God. It doesn't mean that he was something apart from God or something less than divine. It is an expression of his true form. Jesus is God. Full stop. Always has been. Never wasn't. Always will be. But I want you to look at the attitude of Jesus. This is the attitude of Jesus that we see in verse 6. He is God. Yet, that verse tells us that he was unwilling to use his position of power and his position of privilege to leverage rights for himself. Particularly that would disadvantage other people. Jesus refused to grasp at privilege or to exploit his position of honour, even though by rights all that honour and all that privilege was his. This one verse shows us what Jesus was willing to let go of. For somebody else. So even though he took, or he, even though he was God, he, he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. The ESV says something to be grasped at. Jesus wasn't snatching at power for himself. That's his heart towards us and his heart towards his father. That's the attitude of Jesus. But next we see the humility of Jesus in these verses. Verse 7 says, instead, so instead of grasping, instead of exploiting, hoarding power for himself, instead, he emptied himself. By assuming the form of a servant. 
taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. So the the previous verse showed us what Jesus let go of. These verses show us what Jesus embraced. These verses stand as a stark contrast to the previous, marked by the first word, instead, right? This is what Jesus was willing to to let go of and instead shows us what he would embrace. They help us to see what Jesus turned from and what he turned to. There are two little um, couplets, two little groupings of verses or ideas here that show us the extent of Jesus' humility. The first one says he emptied himself, and the second one starts by he humbled himself. Take the first one, he emptied himself. The God of all creation, the one who we know from the very beginning spoke And everything that we understand to exist in this world and everything that we don't came into being. It came from him and it is for him. And he emptied himself. The potter became the clay. The one whom countless angels bow before assumed the form of a servant. Taking on the likeness of humanity. Emmanuel. God with us. That's unthinkable. That's that's unbelievable even. That the one to whom all majesty and all glory, all power, all dominion, forever and ever, amen, would humble himself. How? That's the second couplet. By becoming obedient to the point of death. This wasn't just dipping your toe into the water type of moment for God to sort of go, well, I will just dip in and when it gets difficult, I'll pull back out. Jesus agonized in his last earthly hours before the cross. So much stress on his body as he prepared to go into the deepest and darkest moment in all of mankind's history. The the blood vessels burst in his head and his face and he sweat blood. Even though he knew what it would cost and he knew the agony that he would face and even though he was able to utter it in his honesty before Father. If there's another way for this to happen, Father, then let me take that. But what did he say next? Not my will. He became obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross, the most cursed of all deaths. He emptied himself. And he humbled himself. 
the creator chooses to lay aside his rights. Instead, he takes the form of his own creation. Ever thought about that? Before the earth took form under the hands of God, he always was. Eternity breaks our thinking, (laughs) doesn't it? You ever stop and pondered that? We can't think outside of the construct of time. Everything has a beginning and everything has an end. Everything about our existence, we age, we change. There's a life cycle. Flowers bloom and wither and fall from the vine. Fruit grows and ripens and falls from the vine. Everything that we know is contained within the construct of time, except God. He has just simply existed. I am. Not I was, not I will be, I am. And the creator steps into his own construct of time. He becomes obedient to all that he has actually shaped. Jesus steps in and then steps lower and lower and he shoulders even the curse of death. More than that, the curse of the cross. And remember, in none of this was he deserving. This was not a punishment. He wasn't trying to prove himself to anybody. He was not deserving. He humbly embraced all of it. He let go of the privilege of his power. And he embraced willingly the humility of a servant. But then these verses show us the exaltation of Jesus. Verse 9. For this reason. For this reason. For the reason that Jesus so willingly cast aside everything that he deserved. And embraced everything that he didn't deserve. For this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. There isn't another name out there higher than Jesus. You won't find it. It doesn't exist. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. I had a friend who used to say, no one will escape bowing to Jesus. But you can do it now. You can do it now. But even if you don't, one day you will. You can throw mud in the face of Jesus for your entire lifespan. And one day you will see him face to face. And you will have no choice in his presence but to bow. Every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Willingly, with joy, 
now or with regret and shame later? To the glory of God the Father. This is, this is a beautiful contrast to notice. I want you to look in your Bibles back in verse 6. It says that Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. It can also be translated, that word exploited, held onto. Or the ESV says grasped. But now, because Jesus didn't grasp at honour, the Father freely gives him honour. What Jesus refused to grasp at the Father freely gives. Jesus let go of his rights. He embraced humility, but he was given honor. God highly exalted him. Every knee bows, every tongue confesses. This is the glorious image we have of Jesus. But what divine principle do we see at work in it? Here's my attempt at trying to summarize what I think this shows. The way to honor is not through the elevation of self. The way to honor is through humility. Now, you may have noticed that we jump straight into our passage at verse 6. The passage that we're up to starts at verse 1. We skipped the first five verses. And I think this is the real kicker of this chapter because as beautiful as this picture of Jesus is, Paul paints this amazing Christological image, this Jesus, who was so willing to let go of all of his privilege, embrace the role of a servant in humility, and receive the honor that the Father gave, not that he grasped, as beautiful as all that is, and as important a passage as that is in helping us understand the truth of who Jesus is, about who his nature is, about what he has done That really isn't the point of this chapter. It's just the cream and the icing on the cake. You see, Paul is trying to make a point to the Philippians. And to drive that point home, he points their attention to Jesus. What's the point that uh, that Paul is trying to make? Paul gives us this glorious image of Jesus because he wants us to grasp a glorious image of the church. Let's go back to verse 1. This is focusing our attention now on really what Paul is trying to drive home to the Philippian church, what we need to grasp today. Philippians chapter 2, starting from verse 1. It says, If then... There is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, 
Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, etc. Jesus is the way that Paul drives home the point about what we should be like. The opening two verses, I think, start by sketching out a summary of what we should expect of Christian unity within the church. Paul asks just a bunch of rhetorical questions. Questions he asked while knowing that his readers knew what the answer already was. They reveal the type of, I think, relationship that existed between them and should exist between all followers of Jesus. Is there any encouragement in Christ? The the rhetorical question means that the answer is, no one's in there going, "Eh, I'm not sure. Is there like an answer at the back of my Bible? The answer is yes to all of these questions. Paul knows it. The Philippians know it. We should know it. And so we could say, is there any encouragement in Christ? Yeah, of course there is, right? Is there any consolation of love? Yeah. Any fellowship of the Spirit here? Yes. Any affection? Any mercy? Yes. That's the context of Paul's understanding of what Christian community looks like. So he says, then make my joy complete. There is a type of Christian joy that can only be complete when it's shared. You know that? We can all have joy in Christ. But Paul understood that there's a way of completing that joy when it's enriched by others. You can have joy in Christ and know him. And I have to remind myself of this because I'd be quite happy some days just to buy a little shack up the bush somewhere. Exist up there for weeks on end without seeing anyone. Not, not you, hun. You can come too. <laughs> but my joy would be incomplete. It doesn't mean that the most joyful people on this planet are only extroverts. But there is a way of Christian joy being completed in its fullness as it's joined with the fellowship of joy of other believers. We so often fall into the trap of thinking and pursuing my happiness. What makes me happy? It's not even subtle anymore. Open up your social media feed, and in a thousand different ways, that's what it screams at you. What will make you happy? Pursue it. Right? 
In fact, try and identify all the things that don't make you happy. Cut that toxic stuff out of your life. Pursue what makes you happy. And so we fall into the trap of thinking and pursuing my happiness, my joy. But Paul wants us to shift over our vocabulary. He wants us to shift our thinking. Paul wants us to start using the word our joy. What makes our joy complete? Paul then begins to describe what this unity looks like. And he does so, if you noticed as I read through, by repeating the word same, same, all the way through this little passage. Let me illustrate the concept of unity by likening it to a mountaintop. But there are steep cliffs either side of that mountain. One cliff that we can fall over to our ruin is the cliff of diversity. It's a popular word these days, diversity. It's a cultural value that's taken prominence in Australia. Organisations and corporations are falling over themselves to prove just how diverse they are. They also live in constant fear of being publicly labelled and cancelled because they're not diverse enough. We sometimes mistake diversity with unity. But diversity emphasises the individual at the expense of community. It's all about the individual and making sure there's even enough different types of individuals all here together. I'm not saying that diversity is wrong, but I'm saying that it isn't the same as biblical unity. Diversity is something great as we embrace the differences of individuals, that we don't make judgment calls about some types of individuals, but not others. But that's different to unity. There's a second cliff, the cliff on the other side of unity that we can fall down. That's conformity. Most Christian churches are more inclined to fall off the cliff of conformity than they are of diversity. In broader culture, conformity isn't a popular concept anymore. But among churches, and more significantly amongst cults, conformity can become the glue we think will hold us together. If we can find enough people who are all the same, we'll all be friends. If you are like me, we'll just get along just fine. If we can all be the same ethnicity, if we can all be the same social standing, if we can all be the same, same... Same. Conformity masquerades in many churches as unity. We could look around this church and see lots of people and we're all the same and we're all getting on and we think we have unity. We don't. We have conformity. We take phrases that Paul uses in this passage like same thinking, 
same love, one purpose, etc., and we weaponize them in order to turn discipleship into a production line. You see, conformity emphasizes the community, but at the expense of the individual. The individual no longer matters here now. Now it's all about just the group. Diversity does the opposite. It's all about the individual and at the expense of community. So if they are the cliffs either side that we must not fall over, where is it that we should stand? What is unity? Unity celebrates the worth and the dignity of each individual as a unique created being, an image bearer of the creator, while elevating the reality that we are not created as self-sufficient beings. And we need each other to truly flourish. Individualistic consumerism says, I matter most. Marxist communism says, you don't matter at all. (laughs) But gospel-formed communities of faith say, you are immeasurably precious to God, but you don't need to grasp at that worth or exploit it in order to validate it. Your value in Christ is so secure that you can freely lay aside your rights to it and elevate the worth of others. I'm going to say that again because I don't think enough of us believe it. You are immeasurably precious to God. You are. The individual you. And you're saying, Chris, you don't know me well enough. I don't. God does. And he still says, I love you. You are immeasurably precious to God. But I want to tell you this morning, you don't need to grasp at that. You don't need to exploit it in order to validate it. You don't have to Instagram your life to make it look beautiful to Jesus. Your value in Christ this morning, if you are in him, it is so secure. It is so secure that you can freely lay aside your rights to it even, and you can elevate the value and worth of another, and your individualism is never, is never at risk. Philippians 3 and 4, do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Possibly one of the most convicting verses of the New Testament, especially to our current culture and client. Do nothing, right? There's no out there. There's no do do these things, but these things are okay. It's do nothing 
out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. If those two verses don't cut aggressively against the grain of everything that this world teaches us, then I don't know what does. And maybe you're saying, well, okay, Chris, but what does that look like? Because I don't see much of that modelled in the world. Of course you don't. What does it mean to consider others more important than myself? Or what does it look like when I lay aside my interests and elevate the interests of others? What does it look like? It looks like Jesus. That's why verse 5 says, you want to know what this looks like? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. What did he do? Well, he laid aside everything that was rightfully his. He didn't grasp at it. He didn't seek to exploit it. He didn't need it to validate his position. He said, I lay it down. I let it go. And he turned to those that needed him most and he embraced the role of a servant. He did nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, he considered others as more important than himself. He looked to your interest rather than his. I don't really care if you can't remember all my points this morning. I even worked hard to include a few clever little phrases in there. I don't really care if you don't remember those in five minutes' time. This is the point of the passage and the single truth that I want you to take away. Elevate the interests of others. As Jesus gained honour through humility, so does his church. That's the point. Elevate the interests of others. Because as Jesus gained honour through humility, so does his church. That's the reality. That is the, the centre in the deepest part of our identity. And we have to work it out into every sphere of our life. What would that type of sacrificial humility look like for the sake of someone else's interest in your workplace? Because we're not talking about just doing this when we're on a roster at church. I know the chairs need to be packed up and all the rest of it, but Paul was not thinking about the chair packing up roster here. Or about the morning tea roster. Or about who's on music, or who's on preaching, or who's on all of it. This is everything in life that the church must engage with. Everything. What would it look like for that type of sacrificial humility for the sake of someone else? What would it look like 
in your workplace? Or what would it look like in the friendship circles that you have? What would it look like in your marriage? This gospel calling cuts against the grain of everything this world has been shaping you to believe about yourself and your place in this world. How to succeed in life. And this will take some time to process. Some time, take some time to diagnose in your life what needs to adjust to conform to this. It will certainly take some time to figure out how to implement it. Possibly 70, 80 years. That's about how long it'll take. It will take a lifetime to work out this salvation so that it permeates everything about your life. It will most likely be painful. It will most certainly be hard. But this is what Paul says, and this is how we finish. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says this. Therefore, my dear friends, therefore. right? That's what the therefore is there for. He's just been talking about how we need to adopt the same attitude of Jesus as we elevate others. As we seek honor through humility. Therefore, dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Listen, we don't work out our salvation as though we're the mastermind behind it. But we do need to work the gospel out into every aspect of our life. Probably in the same way, am I right, Cole, that a baker needs to work the yeast through the entire lump? Okay, There's, there's a sense where you've got to knead it and work it and it's got to go through the, the old days, building up the biceps yourself. These days it'd be into the machine, give it a, give it a good work through. But the gospel isn't just something that we just talk about, sing about and preach about for an hour and a half on a Sunday and then it just goes back in the cupboard somewhere. This stuff has to be worked out through our life. We need to take this glorious salvation we've been granted in Christ and work it out into our conversations. How you schedule your calendar. It needs to be worked out in how we argue with our spouse or how we disagree with a friend. It needs to be worked out into our politics. It needs to be worked out into our dreams, into our desires, into the things that we pursue in life. Because remember, you are immeasurably precious to God. But you don't need to grasp that worth or exploit it in any way in order to validate it. Your value in Christ is so secure that you can freely lay aside your rights to it and elevate the value and worth of another. 
Because that's our big point, remember. Elevate the interests of others. Because as Jesus gained honour through humility, so does his church. Lord, I want to thank you that you were willing to let go of everything that you deserve. You didn't grasp at it. You didn't exploit it. You let go of it and you embraced humility. You stepped into our world. You served us. You were obedient to death, even death on a cross. And yet we are those this morning that willingly bend the knee and confess with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, help us in our weakness to work out this salvation, this great news into every aspect of our life as we seek to elevate others and follow your example. Help us not to grasp the lie and cling to the falsehood that we will find worth only if we elevate ourselves. Lord, as your church, let us embrace humility and seek to elevate the value of others. Thank you that we are not alone in doing this. That we follow in your footsteps and you walk with us. In your name we pray. Amen.